0: Leviticus chapter 3 is the sermon text this evening where we find the peace offerings in addition to the burnt offerings and the tribute or the grain offerings. And here now the word of God Leviticus chapter 3 when his offering is a sacrifice of a peace offering if he offers it of the herd whether male or female he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall sprinkle the blood all around on the altar. Then he shall offer from the sacrifice of the peace offering an offering made by fire to the Lord. The fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails, the two kidneys and the fat that is on them by the flanks and the fatty lobe attached to the liver above the kidneys. He shall remove and Aaron's sons shall burn it. On the altar upon the burnt sacrifice which is on the wood that is on the fire as an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. If his offering is as a sacrifice of a peace offering to the Lord is of the flock, whether male or female, he shall offer it without blemish. If he offers a lamb as his offering, then he shall offer it before the Lord and he shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it before the tabernacle of meeting and Aaron's son shall sprinkle its blood all around the altar uh, then he shall offer from the sacrifice of the peace offering as an offering made by fire to the Lord its fat and the whole fat tail which he shall remove close to the, to the backbone And the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails, the two kidneys and the fat that is on them by the flanks, and the fatty lobe attached to the liver above the kidneys, he shall remove, and the priest shall burn them on the altar as food, an offering made by fire to the Lord. And if his offering is a goat... Then he shall offer it before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on its head and kill it before the tabernacle of meeting. And the sons of Aaron shall sprinkle its blood all around on the altar. Then he shall offer from, uh, from it his offering and as an offering made by fire to the Lord. The fat that covers the entrails and all that fat, uh, on the, the entrails, the two kidneys and the fat that is on them by the flanks and the fatty lobe attached to the liver above the kidneys, he shall remove and the priest shall burn them. On the altar as food, an offering made by fire for the sweet, for, uh, for a sweet aroma. All the fat is the Lord's. This shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations. In all your dwellings you shall eat neither fat nor blood. And let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you again for the gift of your word. And we ask you that as we consider uh, the great imagery and, and even the Reality of the peace offering that you might impress more deeply upon us this evening with the the reality of peace, the peace with God. And we ask this in Jesus name. Amen. We have here the third class of offerings, the peace offerings. You may remember there are technically four classes of offerings or maybe five, depending on how you divide them. You have the burnt offering, the sin offering, the meal offering, and then the peace offering. And possibly you could add to that list the trespass offering. I'm still not sure, uh, and I don't think anyone is sure, whether that deserves to be a separate class or just a subset of the sin offering. But in the whole uh, ritual, and again, you can read this in Leviticus chapter 9, and eventually we'll get there, uh, in, in the ritual that occurred in worship, uh, performed by the priests and the people playing their part, uh, we know that the burnt and the sin offerings came first. And, uh, and let us remember that the order is important. That the reason they came first is because they represented the most fundamental necessity, and that is the necessity for atonement or the remission of sins. Following that, as we saw last time, you had the tribute or the meal offering, which went along with the burnt and the sin offering. But then finally, uh, there was peace, the peace offering, which was a fitting close to the ritual. It came at the end for obvious reasons, which we will consider. You don't begin with peace, you end with peace. Immediately, we notice in the uh, details that are found with respect to the peace offering, the same common features present In the other sacrifices, which let me briefly recount those, there is first the selection of the animal without blemish, always without blemish. There was next the offers laying on uh, of his hand on the offering, followed by the slaying of the animal at the door of the tabernacle, the sprinkling of blood at the altar by the priest, the burning with fire. Only here we notice uh, a, a peculiar detail. It isn't the whole of the sacrifice. It's just the fat and the kidneys. And we will see uh, the significance of that later. You have the burning of what was offered with fire. And here we notice it is burned upon the burnt offering. Another significant point. And the final element, which was present only in the peace offering, uh, is the communal Meal that followed the shared meal, which concluded the whole not only of the peace ritual, but the whole uh, the whole of the sacrificial ritual that was found in all the sacrifice. We notice, therefore, important similarities, but also differences. The burnt offering was all consumed with fire. Not so of the peace offering. Not all consumed. Part of it was eaten. The tribute offering, part of it was to be eaten for the priests, but only them. But here, the people might enjoy part of it for themselves as a meal. And yet, at the same time, every other aspect was still present. The aspects that were present in the prior sacrifices were still present here. Nothing is lacking in all of the stages of sacrifice. As though to underscore uh, that there is no peace, there is no communion, there is no remission of sins, as we read in Hebrews, without the shedding of blood, without atonement being rendered. Here, especially uh, in the peace offering, let us see that. Of course, uh, we, we also realize that this was properly secured by the sin and the burnt offerings, that is atonement. And that the peace offerings were offered uh, like the tribute offering, in addition to the atonement, uh the atoning sacrifices of burnt and sin offerings. But even though uh even then, as though to underscore uh the necessity of these other things slaying of the animals, sprinkling of the blood, and so forth, the whole uh ritual was once again performed in the peace offering. Every aspect, Matthew Henry says, though this was not a sin offering, yet we must be taught that all that in all our offerings, we must have an eye to Christ as the propitiation of sin. Even now, and especially here in the peace offering, let us be sure that we see that. Now, again, this stood out in the order of things, how the burnt offering was made first and then the peace offering was literally laid upon it. But that the aspects of atonement were found here within the ritual of the peace offering itself only serve to underscore the point further. Again, the need for atonement, the way, in other words, in which peace comes to the sinner, it comes by blood and by sacrifice. It comes by way of remission. It is the result of atonement and comes by no other way. There is and can be no peace where sin is not pardoned, where God and the sinner are unreconciled. Oh, but where it is pardoned, God says to the sinner and the peace offering, then there is peace. Then there is reconciliation. Then there is fellowship. And so it is fitting that this, uh, this peace should receive its own place and emphasis in the whole scheme of sacrifice and atonement. Indeed, peace is the proper kind of sacrifice that one would expect here, that the sinner aware of his reconciliation secured through the burnt and the sin offering would seek to enjoy this newfound peace with God through its own ritual, ever finding it at the altar of grace where sacrifices were always burning there. He might As you imagine, the sinner's approach to the altar of grace in the old covenant. Any time he wish, come unto God with his peace offerings and add to the burnt offering the fat and the kidneys. And following this, take part in this fellowship meal for he and his family, which followed the peace offering. The meal, uh, which here as ever in scripture and in life, represented restored fellowship and communion with God. God and man communing. A shared meal at the table or the altar of God. It, it says, uh, you get the sense that the altar is the table of the Lord because it says it shall be offered as food to the Lord. This is the Lord's table where he eats and he invites the sinner to come and fellowship with him. And so we notice that God ate apart. The priest ate apart, and the offerer and his family ate apart. That doesn't all come out here. Uh, some of that comes out later in Scripture, but that is what you find in the peace offering. You find that the peace offering, in particular, was for the people, whereas we saw uh, the burnt offering was for the Lord, the tribute offering was for the priest. the peace offering was for the people. But again, not by themselves. First, God must have His part. Signified in the burning of the of the fat. He must set the table by his priests. And yet there having done so he invites man to enjoy the fruits of this blessed reconciliation secured once more by the burnt offering of atonement upon that ground and upon which the peace offering was laid man is able to come and feast with God. But but not, you notice, again, without the help and the ministry of the priests. For they too uh, played an essential part in all of this. They were, as ever, part of the sacrifices and the rituals. Their ministry is what made reconciliation possible. And gave boldness to the sinner's approach to the altar of grace. It wasn't just that the offerings were offered there. But it was that... Uh, to be even more complete and precise. That the priests were there to receive them. At the altar of grace. And that the priests were there daily ministering. Making offerings to God. And ministering grace to the people. And so it isn't enough to say that without an offering. There could be no peace. But rather we should say. Without the priest to offer. There could be no peace. But as the sinner came. To the altar that is what he found as he came into the courts of God there he found the priests standing ready to minister on his behalf at that altar and there he might be assured by the very word of God himself that he could enjoy there the blessings of reconciliation a place in the house of God at his table. There he would make his offering, whether for thanksgiving or for supplication, thanking God for his mercy or pleading him for it. But he may by this act be assured that he would find what he sought, namely a ready audience with God. The presence of a friend and not a foe. Still, having said that, we ought to recognize that All of this could be abused. And that it was abused in the old covenant. How easily the heart of the sinner takes the idea of peace and makes of it license to sin. Such things, says Bonar, were often turned into sin, the peace offerings in the Old Testament. And so, for instance, we read in Proverbs chapter 7, verse 14. Let me turn there. The wayward woman glorying in her peace offerings. I have peace offerings with me. Today I have paid my vows. The loose woman calls men to herself by appealing to her peace offerings. As though this pointed to her piety and excused her sin. Come join me in my sin. For today I have made my peace offering. Isn't that how the the, the heart of the sinner often, if not always, thinks? Seeing the grace of God. As license to sin. Let this be a warning to us all. Think of the wayward woman who says, I've made my peace offering. I've paid my vows. The peace which God offers to sinners is not grounds for sin. It is not an excuse to sin, but it is always a call to holiness, personal holiness. Uh, Paul issues the same warning in 1 Corinthians. He tells those wayward souls who were abusing the table of the Lord. And I refer to this uh, in the administration of the Lord's Supper today. He tells them to be careful how they come to the table. Not in the spirit of indifference or waywardness uh, or worse worldliness and sin. But to come in a spirit of reverence and awe. Seeing that it was God. With whom they met at the table of the Lord. And not to imagine that uh, they could sin at that very table. Or that they could find by the grace that was offered there. Once more license and excuse to sin. As they departed. For Paul says we cannot have fellowship with the Lord at his table. And fellowship with demons can we? Or are we stronger than he? No we are not. First Corinthians chapters 10 and 11. He urges them as they come unto Uh, The communal meal, the covenant meal of the new covenant, the peace offering of the new covenant to beware that we might spurn and abuse this grace. These things, again, were often turned into sin in the old covenant, but also in the new. Going back to the Old Testament, you may remember in Malachi's day, we found the same thing. The peace offerings being abused, though, if you think of it again, the heart of the sinner And the very thing we are apt to abuse, perhaps it isn't so surprising that this would become uh, the altar, not of praise, but the altar of sin in the heart of the sinner. Malachi chapter one, verse seven, you offer defiled food on my altar. But say, in what way have we defiled you by saying the table of the Lord is contemptible? They were despising God and their peace offerings. Verse 12. But you profane it in that you say the table of the Lord is defiled and its fruit, its food is contemptible. Well, this was something we had opportunity to see uh, very recently in those sermons just before we got to Leviticus. And I just note and lament once more how easily we spurn the grace of God. But we see in Malachi chapter 1 how he feels about it, just as we find in 1 Corinthians chapters 10 and 11. He does not accept such offerings, nor is he impressed with our logic. But rather, he says, our logic, by the way, which says, let us sin that grace may abound. But rather, he says, to make such an offering is contemptible to him. He despises and rejects such an offering. It is a dangerous thing, beloved, to come seeking peace, if only in order that we might feel greater security in our sin. God is not mocked. And we are not stronger than he to answer Paul's question. Let us take note and beware the invitation to make our peace with God and to enjoy his peace with us must include the element of putting away sin, an element of purification, an element of repentance. Everything in Leviticus underscores this reality and more and more so as we go on with the book. Putting away sin, yes, by atonement, of course, which is of its very nature, the putting away of sin. But also seeking to put away our sins by repentance. That is how we ought always to come to the altar of grace. Seasons of grace are seasons of repentance, always. Not seeking an excuse to sin further, but grace whereby we might sin less. Any other view of the peace offerings, whether in the Old, uh, Old Testament or today at the Lord's table, is a mockery of what is offered there, the peace that God offers to sinners. Not license to sin, but a call to holiness. Let us come always in a spirit of repentance, seeking the grace that is offered there, that we might find forgiveness and grace, that we might sin less, not more. But let us see once more that as we come seeking peace with God, we do not do so in our own strength or by our own works. As ever in the offerings, the the, the emphasis is what God is offering to man, not what man is offering to God. And so as we come with our peace offerings, as it were, we do so as with the saints of old. On The basis of a sacrifice that is without blemish, one that God accepts in our place and which brings about an atonement that is real and effectual. And as the offerer places his hand on such a sacrifice, he looks to God with confidence that his sin might be really uh, might really be put away and that real real peace might be enjoyed between he and God. That as man was cast out of the garden sanctuary of Eden, he might be invited back once more into the presence of God at his very table. And so the peace offering, uh, the peace offering becomes, therefore, a picture of something much greater, a picture of the sinner's approach to God, a picture indeed of the gospel itself. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying Jesus Christ is our peace. Jesus Christ is our peace offering. Just as Jesus Christ is our burnt offering upon which the peace offering was laid. He is our atonement. He is our reconciliation. He is our sacrifice. He is our peace. In him all of the types and the shadows are fulfilled and perfected. And the sinner in the old covenant who placed his hand on the animal and made his peace offering upon the burnt offering look forward to the peace God would bring through this greater sacrifice. He placed his faith not in the blood of bulls and goats. But in the blood of the greater sacrifice, Jesus Christ, he, like Abraham, looked forward to Jesus day and was glad in the very act of offering and began through the types and shadows of the old covenant to begin to enjoy the blessings that Jesus would bring in advance. None so precious as peace with God. Is it any wonder that Paul begins with that in his list of blessings that flow? From justification therefore having been justified by faith we have peace with God. And still this is true today. If ever we should seek peace with God whether in the moment of trial or in our daily approach to God it must be ever founded on the peace offering of Jesus Christ. But it's the next point may we not also see here an analogy to the Passover meal which was also among the class of peace offerings, that his blood was spilled. And I'm referring to the initial Passover meal, not the ritual that remembered it, but the that Passover night as blood was spill, spilled, and a meal was to follow the next day. The same exact principle was at work. Sin is pardoned and fellowship is secured. Death is averted which is symbolized in the death of the sacrifice and the issue of this is life. The life of covenant communion with God symbolized in a meal of fellowship. But let us be clear once more. It is not man in the Passover or in any of the peace offerings. It is not man that sets the table but God. And it is thus called even now the Lord's table and for good reason. It is he there that sets the table and gives the invitation and meets with man as a reconciled foe, now a friend and a companion. Regaining what was lost in the garden, man and God dwelling together, enjoying fellowship and peace. Let me stress the whole idea of peace uh, represented in the meal is not what man wants. It is what man wants, but that is not the emphasis here. It's what God wants. It's what he is seeking and what he is offering for man. It is what he is wishing to enjoy for his own sake and for his own glory. Fellowship with men. Reconciliation through the blood. Something that he might enjoy and marvel in. Indeed, we are left to wonder, what is man that you make so much of him? As the psalmist says in Psalm chapter 8. Why does God take such pains to bring back his lost companion and to commune with him once more? Here, uh, I would only say and, and wonder, here is a subject that will fill our thoughts in eternity. An exhaustless theme that God should seek to regain us. We were what he lost. We were what he regained by his own blood. And it is he above all who enjoys our fellowship as reconciled foes. But I would also notice the next point, how the fat and the kidneys were devoted to God. We find significance in nearly every detail here. What were the fat and the kidneys? Well, they were the innermost part of the animal. That's the sense you get here, along with the blood which spoke of the life and of the atonement and reconciliation. God is very clear that these did not belong to man, but to God. And they belonged especially to his altar and his table. And so by these, not only was there a signification of what God required of man, namely his innermost parts and the best parts, for this is what true sacrifice entails, nothing less than our innermost affections. And beyond that, we might also here catch a glimpse of Jesus' Uh, Jesus on the cross who poured out his own soul to God and did nothing less uh, than that as he became our peace offering. He offered his innermost soul unto God for our sakes, but also how at the altar as ever, God is calling his people to personal holiness. He is testing our obedience And nowhere more so than in his presence where holiness dwells, as with Adam. For the testing occurs not without the sanctuary, but within, in the very presence of God. The altar, uh, therefore, is not just where fellowship is established, but equally where fellowship is tested. Who is the sincere believer? Who is the one who really has a heart? To worship God and seek peace and reconciliation there. And so we notice that God uh, attaches particular precepts to be observed as we seek peace and reconciliation from him. You find it in the final verse. Here is a perpetual statute. Go to the altar and give your best and reserve the best parts for God. But remember always, even at your own tables, in your homes, what I require of you there and what is my own peculiar possession, what belongs to me and not to man. It is once more we find a call to holiness, a call to devotion in the totality of our existence. It won't do, God is saying, as he later said through his through his prophet Malachi, it won't do to make a show of devotion at the altar. But it really becomes clear how you felt about things once you've left and you've returned to your home and your family and you're sitting with them and you're having a meal. Then the issues of the heart become clear. It's easy to make a show of religion at church. But how do things go at the table with your family? Uh, Morales, once again, as as always, is helpful to me in grasping this. He says, One's approach to God is the surest dissection and deepest revelation of the heart. More than this, the God-ordained approach to himself is the, is the most proficient school for the heart. Theology is hammered out upon the anvil of approaching God in worship. The issues of our theology is clarified in our approach to the altar of grace. But to that I would add at the same time. What you learn there at the altar of grace you must take with you into your homes. And everywhere you go. You must ever remember, God says, the part that belongs to him. So that you see the grace upon which you stand, but also to remind you that God is sovereign in the lives of men. And if he would make peace with us, he would also claim all of our lives for himself. And let no man claim, God seems to say, he has found peace with God who is not prepared to live for God. And observe all of his precepts. Otherwise the peace offerings which we claimed helped us so much really only made us worse sinners in the end. Oh but where there is peace indeed there is fellowship there is communion there is restored fellowship between God and man and nothing so speaks of this peace and and reconciliation as the sinners newfound delight and desire to obey the God of peace and to hear his voice with delight and submission so that when god says here is a perpetual statute for my people with whom i have reconciled to myself he delights in those words he does not find suddenly in his heart a new fi- a new found reason to sin with greater boldness the altar of peace but rather a greater detestation of sin the very sin which made god his foe to begin with and can god now put away that sin and he not hate it Would he find peace with God only to return to the very vehicle of his alienation? Here is, let us see the devil's logic. Let us sin that grace may abound. But such reasoning is far from the heart of the believer who has found peace with God. For if God should pardon that sin, it does not occur to the redeemed heart to continue in sin. In other words, he does not say. Once more along with the devil. Let us sin that grace may abound. No he, re- he rather finds at the altar of grace. The most compelling reason for holiness. So that when God says there. Here are my commands which I require of you. Always to observe a perpetual statute. There is no reservation or resentment or desire secretly to transgress the law of God. But only delight delight. And submission and obedience for that, beloved, is the whole essence of the life of communion with God in the presence of God at the table of God. That is what communion with God consists of having been reconciled to him as sinners. We now have peace with God and as those who are reconciled and those who are at peace. We delight to hear his voice and to walk with him in all that he commands and requires of us. For our obedience now becomes, as it were, a, perpetu- a perpetual sacrifice of praise and spiritual worship. That's how the New Testament speaks of it. The life of consecration, the life of devotion, which God says is most pleasing to him, the believer ever pouring out All that he has and all that he is to God founded not upon his own feeble works, but like the peace offering itself resting upon the burnt offering of atonement. And I would just ask you in closing, is that your view of the Christian life? Is that your view not only of the sinner's approach to the altar of grace and of peace, but also how he goes and how he lives? Is that what you're doing with the peace offering offered at the altar of the cross? Where we find peace. When Jesus Christ now says to the reconciled sinner. Here are my commands. Here are my perpetual ordinances for the church. Are those the things you delight to hear? Are those the things which are most precious to you? Now that he has made peace. Amen. And let us go to God now. Responding to his word. In praise. Standing together. and Singing a hymn of Peace. Hymn number 580, and please stand, 580.